Pastor Adam Lavecki here. This is a sermon live from Rescue Church. We hope it blesses you. Book of John, it could be split up into two sections. Um, one to 12 is the book of signs. Oh, it's not showing. Oh. The book of signs. And then 13 to 20, the chapter, the section that we're gonna be looking at is called the book of glory. And there's some repeated phrases here that I would suggest you guys study on your own because while I was putting this together, I was like, wow, there's so much in the word of God that, you know, we, we just got to like look through and dig through. Um, but some of the things that I thought were interesting were, were all the truly, truly statements, which is, you know, before Jesus even says anything, he says, truly, truly, or amen, amen, or verily, verily. He already authenticates what he's saying before he says it. Um, he gives the commandment multiple times to love one another, and he also says multiple times that your joy would be complete. Okay, and um, this book was also written last of the Gospels. It was written around 90 to 110 AD, which is like around the end of John's life as well. So he's an old man at this time. Okay, we talked about that. <clears throat> Okay, so let's read John 17. John 17, okay. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh and that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. the scripture up here okay so in the first five verses this is a prayer right this is jesus talking to god before these chapters um jesus was talking to the disciples about god but now jesus is talking to god about his disciples and the first thing that i want to highlight is that jesus talks about their relationship first and foremost he addresses father and he, he establishes that father-son relationship by addressing himself as your son. And so before we, you know, before we come to God with any of our requests, it's so important to establish the relationship that you have with the father. He already knows what's on your heart. Um, here Jesus is coming to the father in the hour of his greatest suffering and he's interceding for us. But he doesn't address that in the beginning. He just says, Father, Father, I, I, lift, the, I lift up to you. I glor glorify me, glorify your son. And this is really similar to when Jesus teaches the disciples how to pray in Matthew 6, where he says, when you go, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your father who is in the secret place, and your father who sees you in secret will reward you greatly, will reward you openly. The things you do in the secret place matters. What do you do behind closed doors? Do you entertain sin? Do you talk badly about others? Do you, what is your source of comfort? What do you do when you're bored? Do you talk to God? Do you listen for his voice? What you do in the secret place will either deafen or sharpen your ears to God. It will either hurt your conscience or give you boldness. Mm. Come on. Amen. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also think that, you know, when you're bored or when you're feeling disappointment or feeling anxiety, that's an invitation for you to get in the secret place. That's an invitation for you to pray. Mm 
when you're feeling depressed, when you're feeling anxiety, when you're bored. Like, those are all, like, God is saying, like, hey, come, come here, come here. And sometimes we medicate those things or sometimes we, um, you know, entertain ourselves with, like, Netflix or something or, like, you know, just Instagram scrolling. You can, like, spend hours just doing that. But when you feel bored, get into the presence of God because that will change your life. Okay. I have a lot here. Hold on. <laughs> okay, also in this passage, you know, we see that Jesus talks about the assignment that God gave to him, that God had for him, that he's about to accomplish, which is getting on the cross, dying, resurrecting, and being exalted. But he talked about the glory that he shared with the Father before everything else. It says um, at the end of verse 5, Oh now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Like before the world began, Jesus, the Father and the Holy Spirit, they were in perfect fellowship. They were in perfect communion. And Jesus is saying, Lord, restore that. I want that. I want to be with you again in, in the completeness and the perfection that we had before everything else happened. Before all these people, before all this earth, before all the heartbreak that we had to experience, Lord, restore that. Restore that fellowship. And you know what? Jesus is the restoration plan for the world. Okay, moving on to verses 6 to 8. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and you have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me. They have received them and have known surely that I come forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus acknowledges that everything that the Father has is his, and that everything that Jesus taught the disciples was from the Father. He says that he manifested his name to the disciples, which means that he was a living, breathing example of the Father to the disciples. He displayed the heart of God to the disciples. He displayed the heart of God to us. And he revealed the love, the power, and authority of the Father to them. And he also says that he did not do anything or say anything on his own, but in complete dependence on the Father. In some earlier passages, Jesus told the Jews twice that he does nothing on his own. Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda, and the Jews were furious that Jesus healed them because it was a Sabbath. And um, Jesus tells them that the Father was working and that he is also working. In John 5, 19, he says, The Son can do nothing of himself but what he has seen the Father do. So what does that mean for us? I think that means we too must get connected with the heart of God, the heart of the Father, and do what he's doing. In every moment in our lives, we ask, we have to ask, what is the Father doing right now? What is, you know, what Sarah said earlier today, what is the Father doing in my life? What is the season that I'm in? What is the Father requiring of me? What is something that I need to give up? What is the Father doing in your life? There's also a transference here. Like you can see in this passage, you gave me people, but they were yours, and now they're mine, and they've kept your word, and everything that I have is your is theirs. You know, there's like a there's like a transference of people, ownership, and authority in this passage. Everything that we have is from God and everything that is God's is ours. We're gonna read um, the rest of the passage now. Um, Cause I wanna point out some themes that are kind of like 
all over the place here. So I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be as one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition or destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified by the truth. I, pray, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, which is us, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I've given them, that they may be as one, just as we are as one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Amen. There are a few main themes that are very apparent in this passage. One of them is unity. Hold on. Unity. The unity that Jesus is talking about is under one mind, one body, one spirit, one communion. And there, the transference that we were talking about before, that they may be as one, as you and me, as Jesus and the Father are one, and I am in you, Jesus is in the Father. That they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. When we look at the original design of humankind, we can see the intention for humankind was unity. Let's look at Genesis 1, 26. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. It doesn't say this anywhere else in the Genesis scripture. It doesn't say us. It says, let God or let um, I or, you know, he, he doesn't talk about us. And it's intentional that he's saying, let us make man in our image because there's a there's more than one person here. There's three in one. It's, he is a triune God, the Trinity, the three in one. And it was intended for humankind to reflect that. Like there is more than just one. And to be one with the triune God. That was his original design for his people. Yeah. And then when we look at Revelation 22, verse 3 to 4, it says... And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. It also says that 
there's going to be all nations, all tribes, all tongues, which is, you know, more than one person. He intended for us to live in unity. It also says in this, and we're going to come back to this, but it says his name will be on their foreheads. We're marked by his name. We're going to come back to that, so just keep that in mind. Um, unity requires repentance and forgiveness. Think about it. You know, you're living in family, right? You're one unit. We're going to start from like, let's start from a marriage. There needs to be unity in your marriage. Otherwise, you know, it's going to end up in divorce. There needs to be an agreement. There needs to be constant communication. There needs to be um, forgiveness and repentance because the people closest to you are going to hurt you the most. You know, like, I wouldn't say Isaac hurts me the most, but if he chose to, he really can hurt me the most. <laughs> but you know, growing up in your families, you know, if you have siblings, if you, you know, you're with your parents, or you just, there is something that, you know, they have access to your inner life. They have access to all your secrets, all your sins, all your weaknesses, and they can, if they wanted to, they can really use that to harm you. But, you know, sometimes it happens without you even realizing. Like, sometimes, you know, Isaac might say something that he really meant no harm by, but it, like, really affected me. But then, you, what, what happens? Like, I can't hold a fence against him, but we need to talk about it. We need to forgive and repent and release. And that is how you walk in unity. So even in a family, right? Let's say your kids are fighting. I don't have kids, but I can imagine, like, you kind of need to um, help them reconcile with each other. If they're fighting, like, if, if one kid, like, okay, let's say me and my sister, let's say we were fighting and something happened and we're not talking, the whole family is going to feel that. The whole family is going to feel the division in your relationship. Same thing in a church. Like, we're walking here together, and we're, you know, when you walk in community, um, my, one of my friends gave me this illustration. She said, it, she saw, like, a vision of people walking in community, and it's like, you're walking in a huddle. Like, you're trying to get somewhere, but you're, like, walking in a huddle. Like, Isaac, come here. We're going to demonstrate a little bit. Oh, Sarah, you too. <laughs> Okay, let's say, okay. Nice. Unity. All right, let's, <laughs> like, we're, we're close, you know? We're walking. All right, let's go right. Oh, sorry, I stepped on your foot. Like, oh, Don't let's go shoes. left, let's go left. <laughs> okay, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable, you know? Like, we step on each other's feet. We rub each other the wrong way. Mm. This is what happens. Thank mm. you, guys. This is what happens when you're walking in community and in unity. You're going to rub each other the wrong way. We're all going to rub each other the wrong way, you know? <laughs> but the thing is that we need to forgive each other and we need to repent. Amen. Let's go to um, Peter's story in chapter 13. Peter says in his zeal, Lord, I will lay my life down for you. But Jesus says, Peter, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. Mm -hmm. Jesus makes us aware of our sin and failure so that we, we can realize that we can't even lay our lives down by our own will. We need revelation, and that can only happen by, surrounding, by, by surrendering to the Holy Spirit that we can lay down our lives. Okay, so the thing about Peter is that Jesus called him out. It was public. Another person that Jesus called that was Judas. Ju Jesus said that Judas would betray him, and he did. But the response that happened, the response of both of them are so different. It's a posture of humility. Peter, after he, after he betrayed Jesus, after he denied him, 
He, he like, you know, we don't really hear about him until the end. He probably was doing his own thing, was probably kicking himself and just, you know, saying like, why did I do that? But Judas, Judas turned away from God. He fell to his guilt and killed himself. But Peter repented. Peter repented and he responded to the call of Jesus. Repentance brings you back into alignment with God. Let's go to forgiveness, okay? Jesus had to forgive, I mean, John, John, we're talking about Apostle John. John had to forgive his brothers because they fled while he remained at the foot of the cross. Okay, think about it. You do life with 11 other messed up guys just like you. Jesus called every single person because there was something on their life that he saw and you, you witness miracles together, you do ministry with Jesus, you sleep and eat and shower and do everything with these 11 people for three years. They face persecution, they eat with Jesus, they walk with him, and they're fully devoted to the point where they left their jobs, they left, they left their old lives to do the work of the kingdom. And John was the only one who was like, hey, where is everyone? You guys ran away. I'm pretty sure John had to forgive them for, for leaving. Because they, they not only left Jesus, they left John too. And they all, all the disciples, they also had to forgive Judas. You know, the Judas was probably the hardest person they had to forgive. That's hard. But that's, that's what Jesus tells us to do, to forgive each other. You also need to forgive yourself and others and God because disappointment can lead to bitterness. If you have bitterness in your life, bitterness, disappointments, or wounds, you need to forgive because you've been forgiven. If you're, if you're, you know, if you're still disappointed after you, know, you release and you're trying, you're trying, maybe you need to grieve. Maybe you need to lament before the Lord. What are you disappointed about? Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There will be joy for mourning, beauty for ashes. And in order to walk in those promises of joy, beauty, and comfort, you have to first acknowledge that you're going through something, that you're going through a mourning, that you're going through a grieving, you're going through a loss. Like... I wasn't going to share this, but when, um, when my dad passed away in 2015, I was like, you know, on fire for the Lord. I, I, I was actually on a mission trip when he passed away. And I tried to cover it up with like, I know, God, I know my dad's in heaven. Like, he was a great man. But the more you like try to like cover yourself, there's something in there that's not right. There's something in your heart that needs to break open. And the only, the only healing that you can find is in the presence of God. You need to face what's in here. It might be uncomfortable. It might be explosive. It might be, you know, ugly. There might be a lot of snot and tears, but God says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. <clears throat> the other thing that comes against unity is division. Division. Let's talk about division. Division enters through bitterness. Okay, so if you have that disappointment in your life. You have bitterness in your life. You know the only person that your bitterness is hurting is yourself. Mm 
But division enters through bitterness, through unforgiveness and unconfessed sin. Secrecy. Sin is a foothold for the enemy to divide and conquer. Even, you know, I'm going to say even in a family, right? You got unconfessed sin. It's going to affect your family. It's going to affect your relationships. This is why Jesus prayed for us that the Father would keep us from the evil one. Satan is very legalistic. He will take unconfessed sin. Let's say you, you know, you're in a house. You, you got a door, right? Unconfessed sin will open the door. It will give him a little bit of a foothold in your house. It's a legal right to enter in. Don't live life in secret sin because it will give Satan access to your life. When you're dealing with something in secret, it is extremely difficult for you to overcome it. A spirit of secrecy will cover up your sin and will keep you in bondage. How do you get out of that? You confess it. Confess your sins to God. And you need accountability. If you, need, if you, if you find yourself doing the same thing, if you're constantly doing you know, the same shameful thing that you do or what you think is shameful, Ask, you know, find a, find a brother, find a sister who you trust. Sometimes you need light to shine on that issue. Sometimes you need people to speak into your life. And then also when you talk about it with people, you realize, this isn't me. This isn't what I was called to. This isn't, you know, this isn't something that I want to struggle with. And sometimes when you talk about it with people, you realize the gravity of your sin. Like, when you're by yourself, sometimes, you know, you think that, like, oh, I slipped up a little here, I slipped up a little there, oh, I'm not going to do it again, oh, I did it again. Okay, but when you talk about it with someone, you're like, oh, that's heavy. My sin is heavy. And if they're a good brother or sister, they're going to lead you to repentance. Another thing that's required for unity is agreement. I'm going to talk about something about agreement that is not of God. But did you know that the Tower of Babylon was built on agreement? It says in Genesis 11:6, indeed the people are one. One, they have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing as they propose to do will be withheld from them. In other words, they were united in their humanity, and it would be impossible to stop them. They can do whatever they want. So what did God do? He gave them different languages so they wouldn't be able to understand each other, and they scattered. In the native tongue where they were speaking in Babylon, I think it's Akkadian, Akkadian. Babylon means gate of God. But in Hebrew, it means confusion. When we're not in agreement with God and, tr- and we're trying to do our own will, we're trying to do things our own way, we might think that there's a divine assignment. But God says we're confused. We got it mixed up. We're out of alignment. Agreement is important, but who we agree upon is just as important. We have to come into agreement and unity through Jesus only. Agreement gets us in alignment with God's promise and provision. And you know, even even if... um, even though God gave them all these different languages and scattered them, he still had a plan. You know, he, had, he sees the end from the beginning. In Revelation 6, I mean, Revelation 7, it says, John sees a multitude of people of all nations, all tribes, all peoples, all tongues, worshiping God in heaven. They were worshiping the Lamb of God. And 
we see where God gave all these people different languages to scatter them, we see at the end that God eventually unites all of them, even though they're different, even though they have different um, preferences, even though they have different cultures, we find unity in Christ, not on our own desires or our own preferences. Like, you know, let's say a rescue church, like we all love sneakers. We can't be united on the love of sneakers or the love of clothes, but we got to be united in Christ. That's right. Come on, man. <laughs> Unity with each other is completely supernatural and it's completely God. Division is completely demonic. Division and diversion is Satan's plan for the church because that's Satan's destiny and demise, division. In Mark 3, 24 to 26, it says, a house divided against itself cannot stand, but has an end. Ultimately, Satan will try to come in and try to like do some sneaky stuff to bring division against God's people, to bring uh, people, people of God against people of God or people of God against God. And I say this with, a lot of sadness, but even in the church, let's our global church, or the church just in the United States, there's over 200 Christian denominations and around 45,000 globally. And when we say denominations, it's just a nice way of saying divisions. But I believe, I believe because Jesus prayed this prayer for unity of all believers, that there will be unity in the body of Christ. That all those divisions would fall and that we would become one. When there's agreement in the body of Jesus, about Jesus, there is supernatural authority that's released. Agreement and unity in the body of Christ testifies in the spiritual realm. It testifies to the angels and demons about the power and the authority that the body has to bind things on earth and loosen things from heaven. Right now, right now, the church is not united. And the authority of the church has been given up. Not, not here, though. Not here. But I'm talking about in the United States and globally. Many of the problems that we have in this nation is because the church lost its authority. It lost its agreement. It lost its unity. But I believe that the pendulum is swinging back and there's hunger for righteousness. There's hunger for wrong things to be made right. There's a hunger for the spirit of God to be poured out onto earth. And I believe God is stirring this pot. God is stirring it up, and we're all invited to jump in. Next thing I want to talk about is sanctification. Because Jesus prayed, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. These days, everyone says, what's your truth? Live out your truth. That's not truth. Truth is one thing. You know, truth is the truth. That's the spirit of the world. What's your truth? Live out your truth. I want to live my own life. I want to manifest my dreams. Blah, blah, blah. That's garbage. Okay? That is the false truth. And this is the tactics of the enemy to to strip people of their identity, their purpose, their connection to God. The enemy distorts truth. He distorts the image of God. Therefore, Distorting the image of ourselves because we were made in the image of God. The enemy hates us. He hates you. He doesn't want you to succeed. He hates that if we live by the truth of God, it will lead us to freedom. He doesn't want us to live in truth because that will lead us to freedom. Sanctify in Greek is hagiazo. How's my pronunciation? <laughs> hagiazo. 
What that means is to separate from profane things and dedicate to God. It means to dedicate people to God, to make pure, to make holy, to consecrate. It's also used to to describe sacrificial animals, to sanctify, to, to bring a sanctified sacrifice. Sanctification is not for your sake only. It is for the sake of others. Being sanctified is a priestly call because we're being set apart from the rest of the world. I want to talk about what a priest did in Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was a temple, um, the place where God's glory and presence dwelled. And once a year, the priest would go into the Holy of Holies through a veil. It's like a little room. And he would make an atonement sacrifice for all the people from that year. An unblemished animal, a sanctified animal, would be sacrificed. And the priests, they would tie a rope around themselves in case they died, in case they had unconfessed sin and died in the presence of God. If there's... Like, if we were talking Old Testament times, you wouldn't be able to enter into the presence of God with sin in your heart. You would just drop dead. But God is, Jesus is praying that we would be sanctified. Jesus is the only priest that we have. He's the priest and the sacrifice. He is where heaven and earth meet so when jesus says glorify me in your presence god glorify me what he means and what what that means is jesus crucified his glory is a complete different definition of our glory he stood in the gap on behalf of the world that's what a priest does and he writes says after this prayer He goes out to face the consequence of bringing together the utter holiness of heaven and the utter wickedness of earth, the utter joy of heaven and the utter misery of earth. That is what priesthood is all about. Standing at the painful, holy place where the great fracture in creation is healed, the great gulf bridged, where the word of God has become flesh and pitched his tent in our midst, revealing God's glory as the Father's only Son, whose very nature is love. You know, when we think about glory, we think about, what do you guys think about? The celebrity life, the high life, uh, maybe like fame, when an Olympian wins a gold medal, or when your favorite basketball team wins the finals, what else? What else is glory, when you, when you think about glory? <laughs> yeah, because you guys are all holy. <laughs> all right, well, if we're talking about in a worldly sense, right? Success, fame, glory, Ooh. glam and glitz. God's revelation. Amen. <laughs> Brett is saved. Well, Jesus' revolution, that movie, God has just blown through last week wow. to inspire gazillions across the nation. Amazing. Wow. That's awesome. But that's godly glory. Yeah, that's glory. Yeah. Glory. Success, right? Even in, in heavenly terms, it's success. And, and success means coming into the kingdom of heaven. Um, but Jesus shows us that the pathway to glory is the path to death. It's the path to die first. Yep. The path to glory is met with trials, pain, feeling like you can't do it anymore. You can't go any further. It's loss. And sometimes it's preferring someone else before yourself. (laughs) Death is the only way to life. If Jesus did not die, he would not have been able to resurrect. He would not have risen because you must die first in order to experience the fullness of life in Christ. What does dying to yourself look like? 
For me, it means taking my eyes off of myself and onto Jesus. It means laying down your life for your friends. It means turning away from your flesh, your fleshly desires, things that are not pleasing to the Lord, letting go of your own will, your own ambitions, your own dreams, doing things your way, and submitting to Jesus. It's living in the uncomfortable where you know you're doing the right thing and your insides may squirm, but it's having the peace of God in your heart. In James chapter one, verse two to four, it says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So suffering produces patience and patience in its complete form will cause us to lack nothing. We will lack nothing when we suffer. When the whole process is done, the whole process is done, Another verse, chap, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 3 to 5. We also glory in tribulations, knowing that the tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Amen. That means that when we... When we suffer, we are the closest to Jesus. The presence of God is closest to us when we suffer. The person whose very nature is love, the person who stood in the gap, the person who made all things right, lives in you. He lives in us. So that's what it means, you know, that's what it means to live in the priesthood of Jesus. We are called to take part, to participate in the ministry of Jesus, to be reconciled reconcilers, to restore relationships, to restore creation. When Peter Newberger came in, he said something. He said, we are called to bring heavenly solutions to earthly problems. We are supposed to stand in that gap. That's what it means to be a priest. We are ambassadors of God. If every, if every believer believed this, that, that they were called into this priesthood, the church would have the authority that it was given. The church has the solution to all the issues that we're facing, but the church is not active in it. But I wanna say, all of you, all of us, we are called into that priesthood to be to bring down heavenly solutions to earthly problems. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, You are a chosen generation, a, ro a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you realize that you are, Emilio, you are a chosen person. You are a chosen people, a royal priest, the place where God dwells. You are, you are that person. Do we realize it? You know, in, in a Revelation, it says that we will all wear robes of righteousness. You know who wears robes? Priests. What if we all came in wearing, wearing our white robes? Will we then believe it? It would help us, I think, because there's something that you're putting on, but that robe that we're supposed to put on, you are, you're called to wear that. You're wearing that right now. You're wearing the robes of righteousness. Even in worship, let's say we come in here, worship time, it is... It is not the worship team's responsibility to get you to minister to the Lord. Nope. It's not anyone else's responsibility for you to engage with the Lord. It is your responsibility 
to give him access into your life. I could go on about worship, but I'm just going to say this. When we sing back his word to God, it pleases his heart. It pleases him. When we sing back his words and give him praises in faith, his kingdom is established. Do you want the kingdom to be established in your life? Yeah. Start singing. It really helps. <laughs> Whatever it is that you're doing, actively trust in the Lord. It matters. Everyone matters. Everyone plays a part. Everyone is part of this priesthood. It's not about one person. It's not about who's up here. It's not about, you know, who's trending on Instagram. It's about all of us. It is about us. And it's about Jesus. <laughs> Jesus first over all things. Jesus through us through Jesus can we can do all these things. Another thing about being sanctified. What makes you be set apart from the rest of the people? What makes you set apart? When when you when someone cuts you off on the road, what do you do? Brett is sanctified. What do you do when you're mistreated at work? Mm. <laughs> How do you react when you're wrongfully accused or misunderstood? I cry. <laughs> But don't let your emotions cause you to react. Yeah. Don't let it cause you to dishonor or curse others. Just take a moment, breathe, and ask, what can I do in this moment to represent Jesus the most? Wow. Be slow to speak and slow to anger. Part of, part of being sanctified and being set apart is that we were bought with the blood of Christ. That means even in your inner thought life, this needs to be in alignment with the mind of Christ. Every accusing voice be silenced. Every condemning voice be silent. Jesus bought you, and you cannot curse yourself anymore. You can't downplay yourself anymore. You're legit, okay? In the name of God, the name of God is written on our foreheads. He's, he legitimated you. I don't know if that's a word, but he made you legit. So we're going to go back to the name of God. I'm almost done. It might be like another 15 minutes, though. But I want to... Who was the first God, Who was the first person to name God? It was Hagar, Abraham's slave. She, she became pregnant under, you know, they were trying to have a baby because God promised them a son, right? And they were trying to do it in their own way. And so Abram slept with Hagar, which was his servant slave. And when she got pregnant, she, Sarah, Sarah became very jealous, you know, because she doesn't have the baby and, and she, uh, Sarah doesn't have the baby and Hagar does. So Hagar became very afraid and ran away because she was like, I'm not sure if she's going to try to do something to my kid. I don't know if she's going to try to kill me or something. I'm afraid, so I want to protect this baby. And I, she, she ran away. And the angel of the Lord found her and said, go back. Go back and submit yourself. And just imagine, you're a slave no one cares about you. you. Even your life might be in danger. And no one sees you. But here the angel of the Lord came to Hagar and saw her. And so she named God Elroy, the God who sees. And the first person who asked um, God what his name was, it was Moses. Moses, when he was, when God was telling him, go back to Israel so that you can deliver these people. And Moses is like, who am I going to tell them that sent me? Like, what, who am I going to say that sent me? And God said, I am who I am. 
to me, that means, like, we cannot define God. I, like, we have so many names of God. There's Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Misi, Adonai, Elohim, Yahweh. There's so many names of God. And I believe it's because you can't define God in any way. He is everything. He, he says, I am who I am. So going back to this um, passage, Jesus says four times, in, in four verses, about his name. I have manifested your name. Keep through your name those whom you have given me. I kept them in your name. I've declared to them your name and will declare it. What, why is a name important? Um, like when you're in elementary school or high school or any school, you'd label your stuff, right? Like you label your backpack, you label your jacket, you label your pencils, your pencil case, your notebook, your papers. Like what does it communicate? It communicates that it belongs to you, right? And even your phone, your laptop, your, your vacuum, like you put it under warranty, you put your name on it, you know? It, it says that it's yours. Birth certificates, legal documents, passports, social security. Your name indicates ownership and it's also about legal ownership. In Revelation 22, 3, 4, it says that the name shall be on our foreheads. That means that we're marked. We're marked by his name. That means we've been approved. That means we've been bought. That means we are owned by God. And it also means that our life is on display. Imagine, I wish I brought a marker, but I wanted to write God on my forehead so that you can all see Maybe I could have written on all of our foreheads, but so that you could see that when something is written on your forehead, it means ownership. It, it means identity. It's you're identifying with the name that's on your forehead. We are supposed to be living notebooks that are meant to be read by the whole world. That is why being sanctified and set apart is not just for your sake, but it is for the sake of the world. It's God's strategy for the rest of the world. And when we are all united under one name, it testifies of Jesus. This is Jesus' prayer. This is what he prayed in the hour of his greatest anguish to the point where he sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. We were on his mind. We were on his heart for us to be in unity, for us to know how to relate with the Father, for us to be set apart and sanctified, and for the name of God to protect us and keep us and mark us. Some applications. When you pray, pray to the Father. Acknowledge Him. And when you pray, ask, what is on the heart of God? When you pray, Pray that God would be glorified in your life for the protection over the church and pray for unity. Release forgiveness for your others, yourself, and God. You are a royal priesthood. Declare, declare, declare the goodness of God. Do a heart check. What are things that in your life that you need to let go of? What is your inner thought life like? Are you accusing yourself? Are there lies that you're not agreeing with? What is the word of God? What is the truth of the word? What does it say about yourself and others? Love one another as Jesus loved you. Let's love each other. And we already do that. <laughs> when you're suffering, look to Jesus because the suffering doesn't last. Jesus does. Amen. In order to be a fruit bearer, you must become a foot washer. And surrender yourself in the presence of God. I'm done. <laughs> Let's just take a moment to pray. Because I feel that I hit on a... The Lord was bringing up a lot. And I think it's bringing up a lot in you too. And so let's just pray.
as Jesus prayed, and listen. I'm going to ask all these things again, all these questions. Holy Spirit, search us. Search me and know me. Search me and know me. Holy Father, you are a good Father. You are good and you can be trusted. What is on your heart? Who do I need to forgive? Do I need to forgive myself? Do I need to forgive my friends? Do I need to forgive my parents? Do I need to forgive someone that I trusted and broken that trust? Release forgiveness. Say it with your mouth, I forgive them. I forgive them. What are things in your life that you need to let go of? Release it. Give it to Jesus. What are things that you're holding on to a little too tightly? Release it. Are there any lies that you're agreeing with about yourself? Any condemning voices? Any accusing voices? Command them to be silent in the name of Jesus. And speak the truth of God over yourself. Father, we thank you. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus, yes. to be the intercessor of our souls, yes, Lord. to be the priest yes, of our souls. To be the, the priest and the sacrifice. Yes. Thank you. Yes. To make us set apart, to make us holy, to bring us into your priesthood. We thank you, Jesus. God, we give you access to our lives. We give you access. We give you our yes. And we surrender our will to you. That you would do whatever it is that you do through us. Do what only you can do. Holy Spirit, be a seal over us. Fill us right now, God. That there will be a seal of protection over us. And let your name mark us, God. Mark us, Lord. Mark us, God. Let the name of God be written on our lives. Mark us, Lord. Yes, Lord. Set us apart and mark us, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. We confess that apart from you, we can do nothing. Mm -hmm. 
Fill us more with the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we may know you more deeply. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Rescue Church podcast. We would love to see you in person. For more information, visit rescuechurch.tv slash invite.